We are going to be in the book of Matthew this morning, so if you were with us as we read scripture, you can just stay there. We're going to look at the second chapter of the book of Matthew, and we're going to dig into that in just a moment. But one of the things that I love about kind of what happened this morning is, uh, for me, as the children come up and as the children sing, this is one of the many instances during this season that kind of points us to the reality that the Christmas season is upon us. And then it's here. And, and there are many in all of our lives, many kind of signs and pointers to those realities. Now, I'm going to get myself in some hot water here, but bear with me. If you, if let's say that you lived in Nashville or Memphis or New York City, and you were a good friend of mine, and I called you, and this is what I told you. I, I said, listen. We have the most amazing thing happening at our church this Sunday. We're going to have singers that you will not believe the majesty, the might, the precision, the beauty of what's getting ready to happen. And let's say that you considered what I said and you're like, oh man, I'm going to go see this. What would you be expecting? You might be able to expect to, to show up here and there's an orchestra there are trained professional singers. And then you get our children's Christmas program, which is great. No grandparents rush me after this and beat me up. But in some ways, as I was just considering this morning and considering our text and considering this Christmas season, one of the things that we have to have in our minds and one of the things that we have to consider is that as Jesus was being born. And as we see and as we're going to see this morning in the book of Matthew, that Jesus was being heralded as being here, the Messiah has been born. That the people to whom he came, the people. That he came to save. Didn't get it. And I think in some ways they were looking for something more grand. They were looking for something more majestic. In fact, I think that we know through through some scholarship that they were looking for a grown man probably coming into Jerusalem with a band of magnificent horses and warriors and coming into Jerusalem and was going to take Jerusalem by storm. And that's not what happened. Jesus came as a baby. Last week, if you were with us, we're going through the book of Mark and we see Jesus going into Jerusalem and, and he stopped and he healed this blind man named Bartimaeus. And one of the things that we pointed out from this text that was so amazing to me is that this blind beggar Bartimaeus, who would have been the lowest of the low According to that day and age and to society. That Jesus chose this blind beggar. Considered by many cursed from God. He chose this man to announce for the first time. Son of David. Messiah is here. And as he is going into Jerusalem. As the next stop is going to be Jerusalem. It's this man that announces the king is here. The king has 
come. No one was expecting a baby born in a stable to two people like Mary and Joseph. If you know anything about the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew is considered uh, probably the most Jewish gospel. And we see it all the way through. We see all these markers that show that as Matthew was writing, the people to whom he was writing should, should, should notice some things, notice some markers. There were things that was expected, things that were expected that they already would have known. History. As, as we look at this, as we get into it, in fact, if you look at Matthew in the very first verse, first two verses, notice how... Jewish this gospel is, it says the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Notice the two titles here, son of David, son of Abraham. Very Jewish in its introduction. If we were to keep going and we were to look at the genealogy, the genealogy here doesn't start all the way back in the beginning. Where does it start? Abraham, father Abraham, the father of the Jews. And then in verse 17, at the end of the genealogy, notice the history. Notice, notice what's in the, in the background that's being brought to the foreground. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. That is, Matthew is writing this out. He is writing this to a Jewish crowd who would have understood these words, who would have understood this history. And the question becomes, what do you think the Christmas message in the book of Matthew, how do you think that would have read? It's fascinating. Fascinating to me. There's no shepherds. There's no inn. There's no stable. There's this nice introduction where we meet Joseph and Mary, where we see Joseph caring for Mary, and all of a sudden we, we see that Jesus is born, and then we jump into chapter 2 of the book of Matthew, which is a really odd place for Matthew to spend some time. It's really odd. What we see is this man Jesus, who has been triumphed and who's been prophesied about, being the Prince of Peace, is born and immediately upon his birth enters into chaos and into friction and into conflict. If you have read any books or articles, uh, or probably even if you've read things online, um, as, as we write and as we read, one of the things that we use to, to highlight or to bring something to our attention, we use different literary devices. We communicate in a certain way to try to bring attention to something. And that certainly happens in the Bible. And as we're reading the book of Matthew, if, if we were to read the whole first chapter and go into chapter 2, you would see that Matthew is, is providing a pointer. 
There's something that he does here in the very beginning that I think is supposed to point us to something really significant. As we've already said, as we've already noted, as we read the first two verses of the first two of the first chapter, we saw that Jesus was called the son of David, Jesus, the son of Abraham. And as we read, as we get closer to chapter two, notice verse 21 of chapter one. Notice these names and these titles. It said, and she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And then in verse 23, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. We see that Matthew, as he is writing, is proclaiming the name and the majesty of who Jesus is. And so far, so good. And so when we get into chapter two, there's something that we need to notice that causes a major problem. As we look in chapter two, verses one and two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born? Look at the title, King of the Jews. Now we have a problem. Now we have a problem. Now there is conflict. Look at verse 3. When Herod heard this, he was troubled. Matthew is pointing out the reality that when Jesus was born, when Jesus came on the scene, his very presence was threatening. And the reason that his presence was threatening, the reason that Herod was troubled was because Herod was the king of the Jews. That was the title that Herod had achieved for himself. Who is this man, Herod? Herod was not a, a Jew by birth. He Somewhere in his family, it's thought that his father's household had converted to Judaism. Herod's father was a friend of Julius Caesar and uh, ran in those political circles. Um, we could make some jokes and references here that I will not make, though the tempting it may be. But what we can simply say is this. Herod's father created a path, paved a way for Herod and his brother to have favor with the Roman authorities, so much so that Herod rose and was given political power. And the post that Herod held as king of the Jews was that he was given this territory to reign and rule over under the authority of Rome. And can you only imagine, we have to imagine, the tension that Herod must have felt as a leader. Because on one hand, Herod was loyal to Rome. This is where his power, this is where his authority came from. This, was his, this is where he derived his political um, chops. His everything was really, he owed it to Rome. But part of him maintaining that power was to make sure that these Jewish people under this Roman authority didn't rebel. And so Herod, throughout his reign, you see him 
playing both sides. And, and ultimately his allegiance was to Rome. But you would see him do things like build a magnificent temple. He rebuilt the temple. Kind of throwing a bone to the Jewish people to keep them under his thumb and to keep them with him. So what's interesting is when these magi come and they say that the king of Jews has been born, everything within Herod stopped. Who he was, his political position, his power, his status in that one moment was threatened. And what I find very interesting is that Herod, when he heard the Magi say this, didn't just think, oh, there's somebody that was born that may one day take the throne, like, right, follow my logic, the next president of the United States. In fact, probably the next four or five presidents of the United States have been born, right? And in their due time, we'll take that position if the Lord tarries. That's not what Herod was hearing. In fact, when we look at verse 4, it says this, Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. That Herod understood that when these magi came and when they said that they were looking for the king of the Jews, he understood that who they were talking about was the Messiah. And he was threatened to his core. Why? What's his expectation? Expectation of the Messiah, the prophesied one, the one that is coming, would come in and overthrow Rome. And gather his people, gather Israel. And would establish the throne according to the line of David. And this threatened Herod to his core because where had Herod gotten his power? From Rome. Isn't it interesting? Stay here. You don't have to turn with me. But if we, and we look at the end of this, towards the end of this gospel, in Matthew chapter 27 at the crucifixion, in verse 29, Matthew writes this. He records this. After twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. In verse 37, And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. We see at the end... As Jesus was dying, we see how they had thought of the king of the Jews and what he would be like. And Jesus didn't fit this so much so that they mocked him at his death. But Herod, Herod in his position was not in a position of mocking. He was in a position of fear. He was paranoid. There's another pointer that I want you to see at the beginning of this text and that you may miss it. Our kids sang about it this morning. Did you notice that it says that the people who came 
to Jerusalem who came and talked to Herod that they were magi. And we've just, I think, grown uh, accustomed to the Christmas story. And so we don't think too much about this. We don't think too much that you have this Jewish gospel written to Jewish people and you have these magi who are coming and looking for Jesus. Now, I'm going to rock your world for a minute. We don't know that there were only three. There could have been more. There could have been five. There could have been six. We get three because there were three gifts. It could have been there were only three. But it could have been we five kings for all we know. There are a lot, there are a lot of things that we don't know about the Magi. We don't know were they actually kings. They were part of a ruling class. There are a lot of things we don't know that have developed or enveloped into the the Christian myth of the birth of Jesus. But what we do know is vitally important. The thing that is being pointed out in the beginning of this gospel, the thing that Matthew is drawing attention, and I think that his Jewish readers would have understood, is that the people that were coming and looking to worship Jesus were dirty Gentiles. The furthest thing you could get from a good Jewish trio of men. They were from the east. They were outsiders. What, do we, what else do we know about Magi except that they were Gentiles? They practiced astrology. Magic. The dark arts. If you know the Old Testament, the Old Testament does not look kindly upon these things. And it's these men that Matthew, at the beginning of this gospel of Jesus Christ, these dirty, rotten, pagan Gentiles, it's these guys that come looking to worship Jesus. And this should blow our mind. And it begins to point us to this reality that the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in is not smaller than Herod or Jesus' accusers thought it would be. It's actually much bigger. Get this. At the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, he has these Gentiles coming to Jesus to worship Him. And then what is, what is said at the end in Matthew 28, the Great Commission? Go unto all nations. Matthew is pointing us to this reality that the Messiah that has come is more and greater than just this political figure who's going to come and save his people from the Roman regime. This Savior is coming to do something much greater and much Bigger. There's just something wrong in this text. There's just something wrong. These people keep missing it. Look again at verse 3. I think we miss this often in this text as well. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And notice what the next line is. 
and all Jerusalem with him. When we look at this, this just isn't a mistake that Herod was making. It says that all of Jerusalem, God's chosen people, were troubled with him. And you may ask, why in the world would they be troubled? Maybe they knew how unstable Herod was at this point of his life. Maybe they knew that if there was somebody who was claiming to be the Messiah, or if the Messiah was born, that Herod may do something just drastic and awful in order to save himself and to save his political power. Maybe the Jews were scared of Rome. And they didn't want this rumor getting out to Rome because they were scared that maybe Rome would come in and tighten the screws. Maybe, and I think this is the base of it all, that they were so comfortable, they were so comfortable in this situation that they didn't want anybody like Jesus coming and messing with what they had. And it wasn't just the people. Notice in verse 4, He gathered together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and He inquired of them, where the Messiah was to be born. Notice, notice again, it's not just the people, but it's the religious leaders of the day as well. And they get the answer right. They go to the book. They go to the prophecies. They tell the Herod and the Magi where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And you would think, oh, these religious leaders, they got it. They've heard this news. What would you expect to happen? They're coming. They've seen something. They're going to Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem. They want to know where the Messiah is. Maybe even, this is speculation, maybe even, you know, Bethlehem is only five miles from Jerusalem. This is a very easy, short journey. Maybe they had even heard rumors. Maybe they had heard rumors of yeah, a year ago, we, we remember hearing these shepherds talking about some strange things happening. Maybe they had even seen the star themselves. What would you expect to happen? I'll tell you what I would expect. I would expect a whole bunch of people running to Bethlehem. Right? I mean... Even think in terms of Herod. One of the greatest things Herod would have done, could have done, would have been to embrace the Messiah. To have been the king under whose reign the Messiah was born. And that Herod led the charge. No such thing. No such thing. The people were afraid. Herod was paranoid. And the only people that made the journey at that point to Bethlehem were these Gentiles. Let's look at what was in Herod's mind. Herod secretly, starting in verse 7, called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that so that I may too come and worship him. That's what we would expect. After hearing the king, they went their way. The star which they had seen in the east 
went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell on the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way because they had been warned that Herod had no interest in in worshiping this king. Herod's only interest was to destroy this king. Does Jesus mess with your kingdom? Does Jesus mess with your security and your own little kingdom? Hmm. One of the realities of celebrating Christmas, of thinking about this birth narrative, of looking at this season of Advent as Christians in our day and age, is that it's supposed to remind us not only that Messiah came, but the Messiah will come again. And we are to be a people who are hoping and waiting and longing for the return of our Savior. There's a danger. There's a danger that we focus on our world and our little kingdoms and the little weak things that we have created to prop ourselves up and to protect ourselves that our focus lies there and that we miss how we are supposed to be living. We miss how we are supposed to be waiting and awaiting this sun that will come again. Instead of Herod looking and searching for the glory of the Messiah which had come, got so enraged and bent out of shape because it threatened his idol, his power. Herod has an interesting history. Not a pretty one towards the end of his life. Herod, towards the end of his reign, he, he died probably a couple of years after uh, Jesus was born. Probably four, Jesus was probably about four or five when Jared, when Herod finally died. And one of the things we know from history about Herod is that this, this insecurity, this paranoia just kind of grew in him. Herod had married this uh, lady, a, a Jewish lady, and it was his second wife, and he, by all accounts, he really loved her. But Herod's sister had planted some seeds in his mind that his second wife was not who she was supposed to be. And so Herod had her killed, had her two sons killed, had her grandfather killed, had her brother killed. And then later, as Herod himself, he had various other, I'm not going through the whole litany of people that Herod ended up having killed, but... Towards the end of his life, as he was on his dying bed, he changed his will three times. 
to try to control things as he was on his deathbed. And one of the last acts that he commissioned for um, to, to have done was that he had his oldest son killed. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that if we back up a couple of years to this occurrence, it shouldn't surprise us at all that when Herod feels this threatened, that in his paranoid, delusional mind, in order to keep his kingdom, in order to keep his idols intact, that the logical thing to have happen would be to send people to Bethlehem to kill all the children under two years of age, effectively, in his mind, wiping out the possibility of the Messiah being here. We think, we think, how terrible that he would have dozens of babies, young children in Bethlehem killed. But I don't want to jump too fast over this because I think we all have to pause and ask ourselves, how far will we go to protect our There's one more pointer in this story that I want to bring out. There's several others. This is just an amazing chapter filled with amazing things, and I'm skipping a lot of stuff. But there's one more thing that I want you to consider. If we, were, if we would have read the whole chapter at the beginning, we would have heard this repeated theme of God speaking to people in dreams. Look at verse 12. And having, this is the Magi, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Verse 13. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And then as we heard read this morning, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And then in verse 22, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. At first glimpse, at first glimpse, what we see is God, the heavenly father, Protecting his son. At a closer look. At a closer look. We see something else. That should fill our hearts with hope and longing. And at a closer look. Here's what we see. We see God's sovereign hand. God's sovereign hand doing two things. One. God's sovereign hand fulfilling the scriptures. Over and over again, what we see is that this dream happened and then scriptures were fulfilled. This dream happened and then scriptures were fulfilled. But the bigger thing that we see here is that God's sovereign hand orchestrating events so that you and I, the people of God, would have a savior. And one of the things that's fascinating as we see this unfold is this. 
Not only does God warn Joseph and the Magi in a dream, but did you notice what happened? We have all these prophecies that are laid out here that Jesus, this, so the scripture can be fulfilled, that Jesus was from Bethlehem, or at the end of verse 23, he shall be called a Nazarene. Did you, did you get how, how God did this? What Herod meant for evil, God meant for good. Herod's evil intentions, his evil plans, were used by God to orchestrate the coming of his Messiah. And it meant that it was done in a way that was strange. How do you think? If you had to write the story of Jesus. How would you have him coming in and saving the world? Probably wouldn't be a cross. It probably wouldn't be that these plans of evil men. To crucify this man Jesus. This threat to them. This one that said he was the son of God. This one that said he was the Messiah. The evil intentions and evil plans of men. Served. To bring in. The salvation of the world. The reason that I bring this up. Is because the question. That this text begs from us is this. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? I think many of us are leaning on other structures. Money, power, prestige, politics. This is who we are. As we are longing and awaiting for the return of Christ, where is your trust and where is your hope? And isn't it just fitting, isn't it just fitting that this morning that God might use the praises of little children to draw us into a place that these little children with hands in pockets, sitting down at inappropriate times, standing back up, that God would use what we saw this morning, that God just might use that to, as a sign to point us to the reality that we can trust our sovereign God and the plan that He has set out before us. And the question becomes this, will you hear? Will you trust. He is coming again. Will your posture be longing, waiting, expecting, rejoicing? Or will we go about creating and protecting our own little kingdoms? This season is meant to remind us 
we don't trust in our own power. We trust in His power. We don't trust in our own plans. We trust in His plan. We don't rest and build our own kingdom. But we pursue His kingdom that He has established. Will you this morning? Will you this morning see the signs that are pointing to something glorious? Will you see it? Will you trust it? Or will you leave this season unchanged? Will you leave this season self-absorbed? And only worried about your own little kingdom that will be blown away. Blown away. The Bible says life is a vapor. Isn't it fascinating? Isn't it fascinating? Herod was so concerned about his kingdom and his name. And I believe if it weren't for the gospel of Matthew, we wouldn't even know who he was. But the whole world stops. To celebrate King Jesus. Who will you serve? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am thankful for the children this morning. God, I am thankful for the workers that, has, that have worked with them. God, it's my prayer that as they sing, not only does it fill our hearts with joy, but God, I pray as I sit and listen to them singing, as I see and hear them reading scripture god i pray that lord that that scripture would just be ingrained in their hearts and in their minds and that lord when they are older if you tarry that long that it would be even these songs and these scriptures and these truths that make them warriors for you warriors for your kingdom god i pray during this season that we would receive the blessing that you have given to us which these children sing about, your son. God, I pray that we would be a people. We would be a people who the world looks at as strange, as longing, as waiting, and yet rejoicing because we know our hope is sure and your kingdom is coming. We thank you for your salvation through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.